We'll open up to Mark's gospel. We're going to be in that section that Anna read. And this is a long chapter. In fact, this is one of the most extended portions of teaching in Mark's gospel. You know, Mark is like the newspaper version of the gospel. It's all action. It's like a comic book. There's very little teaching and there's a lot of action. Jesus is always on the move. And Mark was writing to Roman Gentile Christians. Uh, You know, Romans in general, they were obsessed with power and authority. So Mark gives them all they want in this gospel. But he really slows down here. And he records this discourse that Jesus shares privately with his disciples. And it's so instructive. Um, And there's a lot here. So this is going to be a series. The beginning of the end, we're going to do maybe two or three different Sundays. I'm not really sure yet. But today will just be part one. And we're only going to try to to cover the first 13 verses here. So Mark chapter 13, it's already been read. I'm not going to reread it. But I just want to remind you that this is a, a very awkward moment for the disciples. If you can remember back three or four weeks ago, the last section that we taught on, it was heavy, heavy stuff. Jesus was in the temple and he was calling out all the religious leaders. He was pulling out all stops. He was exposing people. I mean, this is, this is the Jesus that as a kid growing up, I wish, I wish I would have been more exposed to this Jesus. He's turning tables over. He's passionate. I'm sure his his voice was raised, his eyebrows were slanted. Jesus was not happy at what he saw in his father's house when he came to the temple. There were robbers there. They were exploiting people, vulnerable people, marginalized people, widows, people that were very easy to to mislead and to take advantage of. Jesus saw that and it made him angry. Made him angry. And so he called them out. He turned over tables. He chased out the animals that were in there. And he started calling out the hypocrisy, the greed, the corruption. And so it was very awkward for the disciples. You know, I have a, I have a friend uh, that had his great-grandmother that lived with them for an extended period of time. And this family all got together for dinner all the time. And they would have lots of, they were very hospitable, had people over all the time. And this great-grandmother that lived with them, she could not handle conflict. Couldn't handle it. She was like a peacemaker, bless her heart. Anytime somebody raised their voice, she, she, was, uh, she would try to say things that were optimistic and draw people back to a peaceful disposition, you know. Um, and he was telling me about a time they had a Thanksgiving dinner. And, you know, Thanksgiving, everybody comes over. And they reached a, a fevered pitch of argument in the middle of the lunch with like 15, 20 people at the table. People were getting upset. Voices were being raised. It was very awkward. And he said, man, it was really funny. My great-grandmother just couldn't handle it. And so she's a glass half, half full kind of person. And so in the middle of this bickering and arguing, she stood to her feet and she raised up the corn on the cob and she said, this corn sure is good, isn't it? Have you ever known somebody like that? They're trying to find like the bright side in the darkness. Well, this is exactly what happened here because Jesus had just called out all the religious leaders. This was like a wow moment. And they're leaving the temple. Look at this. Chapter 13, the beginning. They're all leaving the temple. Jesus is walking out. His disciples are behind him thinking, what just happened? Did you guys just see that? He turned over tables. He's going to end up getting killed. And they don't really know what to say. So check this out. Here's the corn sure is good moment. Watch this. (laughs) One of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Corn sure is good. They're like, this whole temple, this whole thing's corrupt. But man, look look at these buildings. Isn't that pretty? Isn't that beautiful? And man, it would have been. Did you know that the temple that Herod the Great built was one of the architectural marvels of the ancient world? It was massive, massive. You could fit 
12 football fields in the entire grounds. It covered 35 acres. It took 50 years to build it. People that were eyewitnesses would say as you were walking from the east into the city of Jerusalem, it would look like a white mountain of marble trimmed with gold. Josephus, the historian, said if you were walking in the morning when the sun rose, the glare from the gold would blind you. It would blind you. To the Jews, this was the, the, the proudest monument in their city. It was like a titanic to them. They thought it was unsinkable. And everyone was impressed with it. Except Jesus. He wasn't impressed with it. Corn wasn't good. Corn was poisonous. Corn was deadly. And bless his heart, that disciple is just, it's an awkward moment. And, and maybe you're, I don't, like, I don't like conflict either. I'm the one that's always saying corn sure is good. But Jesus isn't having it. This is not the time to talk about corn. This is the time for Jesus to say, and this would have blown blown their ever-loving mind. Jesus said, you see those buildings? Look at them. He turned around. He said, put your corn down. Shut up. (laughs) He said, you see those buildings that took 50 years to build? And some of the stones in this building, I have read that they weighed millions of pounds. Some of them were 40 feet long and 18 feet tall. I mean, just try to wrap your mind around. How did they build that back then? But they did. I mean, it took 50 years. Contractors were always behind, Joe, right? (laughs) But they built it, and everyone was impressed with it. And Jesus says, do you see that building? Not one stone, and I told you the parameters of the, or the dimensions of the stones, because I don't want you to think little bitty brick like we build a, a building. No, 40 feet, 18 feet, millions of, pound, millions of pounds, and Jesus says, not one stone will be left upon another. They'll all be thrown down. And this is not going to be a natural disaster like a hurricane or a tsunami or an earthquake thrown down. The Greek word means dismantled. This is going to be intentional. This is purposely going to happen. It's part of God's plan. This whole enterprise is coming down, boys. That's what he's saying. Jesus is serving notice here. You know, there was a hashtag, Time's Up, going on with with women celebrities that have been taken advantage of. And, and, And in a way, Jesus is saying, hashtag Time's Up, Temple. This whole system is corrupt. What this temple should have been and what it actually is are worlds apart. This is supposed to be a place where people could come and find God, where outsiders could become insiders, where people could be filled with hope. All the things that went on here, the slaughter of animals, the the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats, that was supposed to point to the coming Messiah. And when that Messiah came, they slaughtered him. And Jesus says, this temple is no longer necessary. It has not served its function. It's corrupt. It's led by corrupt, greedy, hypocritical people. And it's going to come crumbling down. That's part of my plan. He's serving notice here. So if you're following the outline, I know we're all visual learners. So I I try to put together some PowerPoints here. There's three points in this message today, okay? We're not going to cover all the minute details of all of this. But there's three points Jesus is going to leave us with. Number one, don't be naive. Don't be naive. Point number two, don't be misled. And point number three, don't be troubled. And I guess if I could just play off of don't be naive, Jesus is talking to the guy that said corn sure is good. (laughs) It's one thing to try and be optimistic. It's another to try and cover up problems that we all know exist, right? And he's saying don't be naive. Don't be misled and charmed by the beauty of this place. Jesus says, don't you know that what goes on inside that temple is very ugly? Jesus says, you may be impressed by this. I'm not. I'm not. And man, what a lesson for us. Don't we get even, just be honest today, don't we as Christians sometimes get impressed by things 
We don't need to get impressed by. Luke 16, 15 says, the things that are highly esteemed by men are an abomination in the sight of God. We're enamored and charmed, blown away by things that, that they're not entertaining to Jesus. Even buildings and crowds and numbers and Jesus was not impressed by that temple. I mean, think about it anyway, where he came from. He came from the glories of heaven. You think he's charmed by that? He's not. He's not charmed by the authority of the priest that are walking around in there that are filled with dead men's bones and are corrupt and greedy and hypocritical. He's not impressed by any of that. The disciples were. Jesus wasn't. And he knows that his disciples are troubled and he loves them. And so everything that Jesus is going to say is necessary and critical and truthful. So don't be naive. God is not impressed with the things that impress us. In fact, here's what's really interesting to me. If you remember going through the Gospel of Mark, how many times did Jesus predict his own death? I mean, that's a big deal. If you're a disciple, you're following Jesus, he's claiming to be God in flesh, he's claiming to be the Messiah. And then he says, by the way, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered over into the hands of the leaders. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be put on trial and I'm going to be executed. Jesus predicted his own death three times. And do you know his disciples didn't ask any questions about it? They were bothered by it. One of them, Peter, was offended by it. They were confused by it. They never asked any questions. Do you want to know how impressed they were with the, what had become a false religion in that day and a false temple? This bothered them. I mean, Jesus predicted his own death and they were fine. He said, not one stone will be left upon a number. They're like, whoa, time out. <laughs> Let's talk about this. That bothered them. Jesus' death didn't bother them. And I find that's, that's true of us today. The gospel just doesn't seem to impress us. We're impressed with other things. And it's really interesting to me that Jesus is making some amazing predictions here. I mean, all of us sometimes are looking for things to feed our faith a little bit and just remind us, okay, the Bible is true. We can trust it, but look no further. Jesus is making massive predictions. 40 years before, I mean, I'll talk more about this next week. There's dual fulfillment here. The temple's gonna be destroyed. Jerusalem is gonna be destroyed, but that points to a greater cataclysmic event, the end of the world, the return of Christ. So there's near fulfillment and there's far fulfillment. That confuses a lot of people. We'll get into that a little bit more next week. But Jesus is making massive predictions that come true to the letter. Everything he says comes to pass, which means you can trust him. That means everything else he said is going to come to pass. Everything he says about you is true. Everything he says about me is true. He's to be taken serious. That's what it means to fear God. Take him serious. Take him at his word. See, we get so enamored by Nostradamus and Wall Street prophets and... <laughs> Seriously, have you seen some of the documentaries about Nostradamus? They try, they try and take scraps of his writings and piece them together and say, see, World War II did happen. It's like, dude, come on, man. <laughs> I want to see him rise from the dead, and then I'll take him serious, right? But Jesus says not one stone will be left upon another. They'll be thrown down. And did you know that when the Romans under the emperor Titus invaded Jerusalem 40 years later, do you know what they did? They tore down the temple, and they set it on fire, and not one stone was left upon another. Do you know why? Because there was gold that interlaced the whole temple and they wanted to melt all that gold and take it for 
like pillage the whole city and the whole temple. So literally they unstacked, they used horses and they did whatever they had to do to unstack all the rocks, melt the gold and take it. Jesus, everything Jesus said happened to the letter. Maybe that encourages your faith to know that this is valid, man. This is straight up legit prophecy fulfilled to the letter, which tells us if the near fulfillment came true, temple destroyed, Jerusalem raised to the ground, the far fulfillment is going to be true. Christ will come again in person, physically, gloriously, suddenly, purposefully. And everything he said that he will do, he will do. He will vindicate his righteousness. He will establish his kingdom. He will rescue his people. Heaven and earth will finally combine and we'll have a new garden of Eden where there's no curse, there's no sin, there's no death, there's no sorrow. All of that will come true. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a once upon a time. It's not in a galaxy far, far away or in a dark hole in the ground in middle earth. This is straight up legit prophecy. And this should fill us with hope. Jesus is writing this to people in Rome. They're about to go through a storm and they need this encouragement. Jesus is telling them, don't be troubled. All of this is happening. Everything's going to fall apart, fall apart right on time. It's all according to the plan. It's all part of God's timeline. He is on his throne and he is directing and orchestrating history. He will never relinquish the scepter of his throne. He's in control. He's in charge. He's in authority. Nothing takes him by surprise. He's warning the people in Rome because you know what? They're going to be thrown to lions in a few years. They're going to be impaled while they're still alive. And they need to know that this, is, this isn't taking God by surprise. This was predicted. This was planned. So don't, don't be naive. Don't be naive. Um, I think I had some slides of the temple, if you were wondering kind of what it looked like. Can you see that? That's just the, uh, the holy place right there. This would have been in 30 AD when Jesus was, uh, and by the way, he left the temple. They went around and they sat on the Mount of Olives and they're looking down at the temple when they're talking. And man, what a massive enterprise, what a massive building to look out, to look at and behold and be impressed by. And Jesus is just not impressed. He's not impressed by what it represents, corruption, deception, lust, greed. Same thing a lot of religion represents today. So that's what the temple looked like. And do you remember before this happened, Jesus, in every possible way, he's telling them that time's up. You remember there was, a, there was a fig tree on the side of the road when Jesus was going to the temple, the triumphal entry, and he saw that fig tree and it had leaves on it, which in that day and time, a fig tree had um, fruit before it had leaves. So if you, trough, if you saw a fig tree with leaves on it, you would know that what should be there? Fruit. So Jesus saw a fig tree from afar, and he saw leaves, and he walked up, and there was no fruit on it. And remember what he did? He cursed the fig tree, which is one of the strangest miracles in the Bible. Jesus, it's the only time you'll ever see Jesus cursing something, and it's a tree. And people have been like, what the heck? Why is Jesus cursing a tree? It was because a fig tree represented Israel. And Jesus is on his way to the temple, this big, impressive temple, boasting of all his importance and and there's a lot of parallels between that fig tree and that temple. They're both boasting of something impressive, but they're both empty. They're empty. They're barren. He cursed the fig tree because it was false. And he said, may no one ever eat of your fruit again. You're not going to ever mislead anybody else. And that's what he's saying to his disciples about that temple that so impressed them. He says, boys, I'm tearing that thing down. It's not going to be able to mislead anybody else. It's done. It's over. Now, Jesus is saying actually something greater than this that hopefully we'll get to at the end of the message. He's saying there's not going to be any need for a temple any longer. I'm the temple. 
You want to know how you come and meet with God? You come through me. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Everything that temple was representing, you don't need it anymore. It's just a picture. It's a pointer. It's a trailer, right? A preview. So um, don't be naive. And I don't know, for those of you that are kind of Bible nerds and you like to geek out a little bit, this was interesting to me. You know, Jesus came from the Mount of Olives on the, in the east, and he came into the temple, and he taught, and he confronted the false leaders, turned over the tables, exposed the leaders, left, and he came back to the Mount of Olives. And it's really interesting to me, if you read the Old Testament and you remember in the book of Ezekiel, I think chapters 10 and 11, um, there was a vision that God gave Ezekiel, and it was about the Spirit of God coming from the east, going into the temple and filling it with glory. And then because of everything that was going on in the temple that was vile and corrupt and perverted and offensive to God, the Spirit of God and the glory of God left the temple the same way that Jesus, it took the same path that Jesus took in the New Testament, hundreds of years later. Isn't that interesting? And you remember the word Ichabod was written over the temple, which means the glory has departed. Jesus is almost reacting, reenacting that and saying, this place used to be filled with glory and hope and truth, but it failed. Now it's, it's, it's a symbol of deception and abuse and really hate. Matthew 23, one of the most challenging parts of the Bible, Jesus reserved the harshest language for the religious leaders. Remember what he said there? He said, woe to you blind guides, you scribes and Pharisees. You'll cross land and sea to make one proselyte and make him twice the son of hell as you yourselves are. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven and don't let, allow anybody else to go in. All of that is why Jesus is, is making this prophecy and why it's going to be fulfilled. So that's the first point. Second point is don't be misled. <laughs> and honestly, I, I, I uh, was considering and praying about making this an entire message. I, don't, I came from the Bible Belt from the South. I came from a Baptist church. And I'm telling you, folks, if you announced that you were going to teach on the second coming or prophecy, the whole place would be packed out, seriously. And preachers did it all the time because they wanted people to come and give money. Now, I'm not, I, I should, I don't know what their motive was. I mean, what preacher doesn't want every seat filled? I do, you know. Um, but it was, there were always these, pro, these conferences on prophecy and on the second coming, and they had timelines and charts, and there was the latest, greatest book out, and people were all in a frenzy and all in a panic. And I just, looking back, I just remember, where's Jesus in all of that? <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't, maybe your experience was different if you grew up somewhere else. I just remember leaving being afraid. Like, okay, the killer bees from Mexico are going to take us out and nuclear in the 80s. I mean, I'm a child of the 80s, and I was scared to death. I was, I was a scared little kid, man. And I would go to church, and you're supposed to leave filled with hope. I would leave more scared. Like, all oh, the Antichrist and the demons flying around, it just scared the heck out of me. And Jesus is saying, don't be misled. And he's going to give lots of reasons and applications here. One of the first things he says, look at this. In verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately. This was so important that the disciples huddled together. I mean, can you imagine walking from the temple where Jesus says, no, I'm not impressed, corn's not good, and all of this is going to come crashing down. Can you imagine? I don't know how long it took to get from the temple to the Mount of Olives. Can you imagine the disciples walking behind Jesus 
thinking, did he say what I think he said? The temple, what? It took 50, what the heck? They're like, Peter, go ask him. He's like, you ask him. And so finally they're like, okay, Peter and Andrew, James and John, they're the delegation and they have to go ask Jesus in private, what the heck are you talking about? And so they do. Verse four, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, what's the first thing he says there, folks? See that no one leads you astray. The Greek word there, if you're interested, it's blepo. And it doesn't mean just look. It means like look with, with discernment. Be mindful. Be thoughtful. Be alert. Be watchful. Blepo. Look and be mindful and be discerning. He says, do not be led astray. Lots of reasons. One of them is, many people, he says, are going to come in my name. Many will come in my name saying, I'm he. This simply says, I am, which was, as you know, a title for God. Many people are going to, they're going to come in the name of Jesus, teaching things that are deceptive and wrong, misleading. Many of them are going to come and claim to be Jesus and mislead. In fact, a Jewish historian by the name of Dr. Charles Feinberg did research from the time that Jesus made this prophecy in 30 AD, this was two days before his death, in 30 AD to the time that the prophecy came through, the first part of it, in 70 AD when the temple was leveled to the ground, that's just 40 years, 64 people came claiming to be the Messiah and misled a group of people out in the wilderness and they were eventually squashed and executed. 64 people in 40 years claimed to be Jesus. Man, what the heck? Isn't that crazy? And it still goes on today. I remember being a kid and watching the whole David Koresh and the, the Branch Davidians, was that the name of it, in Waco, Texas, play out. I mean, he claimed to be a messianic figure, right? And he claimed the name of Jesus and took the Bible and had some weird, quirky, quacky beliefs and misled a whole bunch of people. It happens all the time. So that's, one, that's the most obvious. And if you're like me, most of you are like, well, yeah, we get it. If somebody showed up and said, hey, I'm Jesus, I've come back, follow me, we're like, get, get lost. But here's where a lot of us get deceived. It's when, when teachers claiming to represent Jesus have all these answers for the final days and the last times. I don't know why. We're very fascinated with end times, aren't we? Not, not just religious people. Even secular people are obsessed with it at times. You remember back in 2012, the, the, the Mayan, am I saying it right? The Mayan calendar? Didn't it say the world was going to end on, I don't remember... If you know the date, shame on you. you. No, I'm just kidding. I don't remember what the date was, but it was like, have you read the Mayan calendar? It's like, seriously, we're going to read like a Mayan or an Aztec calendar and we're going to get all worked up and like transfer funds from bank accounts and we're going to ignore this? Really? But people were misled. But what's more concerning to me is all the quote unquote Christian people that have misled or cults. Did you know? Now look, don't be angry at me. Some of you may be offended. You may have people that you care about that are in these sects and cults. And, but this is all public domain, okay? I'm not making this up. Did you know that the Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses have predicted the end of the world? Now check this out. I'm going to look at my notes because I want to get it right. They have predicted the end of the world. Do you know how many times? I'm looking. Hang on. Nine times. Nine times. I'm not making this up. Check this out. 1874, 1870. You can see a pattern here. It's like first, what, we were off a little bit. And then they tack on a few. Check this out. 1874, 1878, 
1881, 1910, 1914, 1918, 1925, 1975. So they had 50 years of like, okay, coolant, right? And then 1984. Those are the people that come to your door and they tell you they have answers. Those are the people that are camped out outside of libraries and parks with literature that they want to hand to you, telling you that they have the answers you're looking for, but they don't. And feel free to bring that up the next time they come to your door. They will not want to talk about this. But you know, we have our own. We have our own prophets that have misled people, right? You guys remember, uh, there was a book written when I was young, and it was called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is Going to Happen in 1988. You remember that? Some people in the church that I went to, man, they were gobbling that stuff up. And guess what? 1988 came and went. And here we still all are, right? The ones of us that were grabbing onto that embarrassed. Harold Camping, who remembers that name? Okay, yeah. <laughs> he, he made a prediction that the world was going to end in, I think, May of 2011. And it didn't, you know, and I don't want to, I'm not trying to poke fun, but seriously, if there's a part of me that says, you don't really believe that, bro. Like, if you do, write a check to me, okay? Put the date on it for, I don't care, put a month after your prediction. I won't cash it until a month later. But if you really believe all this stuff, and you believe that I'm, I'm the one that's, that's like deceived, just write a check for everything in your bank account to me, and I'll hold on to it, and I'll cash it later. And we'll, and we'll see who laughs all the way to the bank, right? But that happened. It still happens all the time. Jesus says, see to it that you're not misled. People are going to come claiming to be Jesus. People are going to come claiming to represent Jesus. And here, well, I made a chart for you. This is what most people think of when they think of the end of the world, right? <laughs> this is what some Christians think of when they think of the end of the world. And this is honestly what I think. And by the way, I don't know who that preacher is, so I'm not making fun of him. I, don't, I just saw this. That's what people in the world hear when they think of Christianity and we talk about the end of the world. Hey, I'm wrong again. I'm wrong again. I'm going to mislead and deceive people again. And this hurt, this actually hurts the credibility of the church. Because listen, I'm a church planner. I'm an evangelist. I want to talk to people all the time about Christ and the hope of Jesus and forgiveness of their sins. And they can be rescued from guilt and they could be from feeling guilty and from feeling empty and from feeling futile and you know what i encounter people a lot and and they lump all christians they, they, they can't tell the difference between this cult or that denomination they're like we know all about you harold camping right 2011 yeah i remember that and you want to be like corn sure is good <laughs> seriously that's what people think they lump us all together and think we're a bunch of kooks so this doesn't help the cause i know god's sovereign over that but jesus said don't be misled. And this happens part of the time because people are ignorant, but part of the time it happens because people are arrogant. We'll get to this eventually, down to verse 32 or 33. Let me just read this, just so that you can hear from your pastor some, a really good scripture to think of when you think you know when the end of the world's coming. Okay, here we go. You ready? This is Jesus talking, verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. I wanted it to be really awkwardly quiet for a second to just let that set in. <laughs> Nobody knows. And just in case you misunderstood, listen to what he says. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, capital S. You know what that's saying? Jesus and his humanity 
did not know when he would return. (laughs) How about that? You think you know? (laughs) How arrogant. Angels don't know. Jesus doesn't know. Harold Camping doesn't know. And the JWs don't know. Or anybody else that claims to know. Don't be misled. Says, only the Father. So be on guard and keep awake. And I think all of that, honestly, I think a lot of that is a satanic distraction. It's a satanic distraction. We get so easily misled and taken away from the real mission. The real mission is there's people dying in their sins. There's people that are desperate. There's people that are broken and empty and hurting. And we're doing time charts and trying to figure out what phase of the moon we're in and stop. (laughs) That's what Jesus is saying. Don't be misled. And then the third thing is, and by the way, I I put this verse up in in 2 Timothy. Can you guys read this? It says, uh, this is Paul talking to Timothy, and he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you... And this is the warning about not being misled. All these things are going to happen. People are going to continually be misled. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. He says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and what you have firmly believed. And the point Paul's making to his young protege, Timothy, is don't get off mission. Don't get sidetracked. Don't let your mission get hijacked by all these distractions. Nobody knows the end. The point is that you're prepared. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the third and final point. Don't be troubled. Look at this. Verse, uh, verse 7. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. That word in Greek, it means trouble. Don't be unsettled. And how often do we hear of wars and rumors of wars? If you read the news, every day. Every day. But it goes on. This must take place, but the end is not yet. It's interesting to me, the people that are saying, see, here's the sign, the wars and the earthquakes... Jesus is saying the exact opposite. He's saying that's not a sign. The end is not yet. (laughs) Do you you see what I'm saying? People are like, the end is here. Look, wars. And he says, no, not yet. (laughs) That's just the beginning. In fact, he uses a word down here. Look at verse, let me me read the rest of this. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Verse 8, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. You know what all of that was last week? All of that happened last week. I read every single headline that we just read here. Famines, earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, political upheaval, president, politics, all this stuff. It's everywhere. That's just one day in the life of the world. He says that's just the beginning of birth pangs. Now listen, we, we read birth pangs and we're like, okay, a woman going into labor. I get it. I don't think we get it because this was way back when. They didn't have epidurals. They didn't have OBGYNs. They didn't have, you know, sterilization. They didn't have a lot of things. So if, you, if your water broke or if you had, they didn't even have Braxton Hicks back then, I don't think. I don't know. <laughs> uh, we have six kids, so we've, we've been through this a few times, you know. Woman goes into contractions. Is it Braxton Hicks or is it real? No, it's real. Okay, your water broke. It's definitely real. So you, if you can, you get to the hospital. And today we can like... Heck, man, you can set your, the, the, the doctor and say, you know what? I'm going to cut that baby out on October 5th at 10 a.m. Back then, you didn't have that option. There was like an uns- a level of uncertainty, right? 
I mean, at the beginning of birth pains, when, when the contractions start, it could last five minutes or five days. Right, Carolyn? Could go for a long time. She works in a maternity ward or, uh, ward or did. She knows these things. But there was also a, a, a level of expectation and hope and excitement, see? Birth pains represented that. Pains, trouble, affliction, but also expectation and joy and hope. So Jesus said, when you see all these things, don't be alarmed. Don't be troubled. I told you these things were coming. There's always going to be war. There's always going to be hunger. There's always going to be famine and deception. This is the beginning of birth pains. But you don't be, you got to be better than that. Pay attention to my teaching. That's what he's saying. Um, this is what Sinclair Ferguson, now look, this, this to me is the point of all the teaching on the second coming. If we get so enamored and lost and hung up and excited about details, about dates and blood moons and all this stuff, but forget what Jesus is really about to say here, look what our, uh, Sinclair Ferguson said. He said, it is a sad commentary on the church's misunderstanding of this passage that at times Christians have virtually abandoned the task of evangelism because the times are evil. Those are the very times when evangelism is most crucial. You know what Jesus is actually telling his disciples? I'll show you what he is. Check this out. Verse 9. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. Jesus is talking about proclaiming the gospel at the darkest time of history for these men that heard this. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. You know, a lot of preachers quote that verse and they're like, I'm not going to study for my sermon. I'm just going to stand up and the Holy Spirit's going to tell me what to say. And I'm like, man, you are so abusing that passage. This is talking about persecution when you're arrested and you're standing before somebody that's very important and can snap their fingers and have you executed. He's saying there is no preparation for that, but the Holy Spirit's going to fill your mouth with truth. That's what the application is here. But say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. What an amazing, tremendous promise God is making here through Jesus. He's saying, look, don't be concerned. All of this is so the the gospel can go to all the nations. All of this trouble and affliction and even deception, you know what's going to be about being scattered. Jesus wants the message of the gospel to go everywhere. In fact, this passage is a great commentary on the entire book of Acts. Look at Paul. He stood before Felix. He stood before Festus. He stood before King Agrippa. Eventually, he would have stood before Caesar, right? The disciples were betrayed by their own. They were handed over. They stood before councils. They stood before religious leaders. Even church history. Look at Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms. He stood before the the Pope and gave a defense for all his writings because he had actually rediscovered the gospel that had been buried under layers of tradition and complexity for years. And remember what Luther ended up saying? The Holy Spirit, I believe, filled Luther's mouth. He said, look, here I stand. I can do nothing more. God help me. Jesus is saying this is all about spreading the gospel to all the nations. Don't be distracted from the mission like Sinclair says. There's never been a greater time to preach the gospel than when all these things are happening. That's the purpose. That's the mission. That has to happen. That's what he's saying here. Did I finish reading this? Did I read the last part? Um, 
Verse 12, and brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated for all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. J.C. Ryle said this, the gospel must first be preached among all nations. It must be and it shall be. In spite of men and devils, the story of the cross of Christ shall be told in every part of the world. Do you understand how this would, the disciples would, would take heart? You know what Jesus said? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know what he's telling them? All these things that are happening, they seem like they're all aimed against you, the world, the devil, the flesh, even religion. And Jesus says, and yet, the message of what I'm about to do will spread to all the nations. That's a promise. That's a prophecy. He's saying every nation and tribe and tongue will hear the gospel proclamation before the end. Can I be honest with you? I'm really glad that the rapture didn't happen in 1988. Are you? Anybody here glad it didn't happen? Some of you wouldn't be here. You're really glad, right? Because you know where I would be? I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be in heaven either. I'm so thankful for God's long suffering and his compassion and his mercy. I'm so glad the world didn't end all the times that false prophets have misled and deceived people and predicted that it would. Because I came to Christ when I was 22, I was a rebel. I was running as fast as I could away from God, as fast as my feet would carry me. But his mercy and his long suffering were just astonishing in my life. Maybe there's people in this congregation, maybe you're not grateful today, but you will be when God opens your eyes to see The long-suffering of God is salvation, Peter says. He tarries long so that more and more people could come to embrace this message and see Christ as their only hope because he he is. So there's so many, even though this sounds so doom and gloom and grim, there's so many reasons to hope. Number one, the gospel, this is a promise. The gospel is going to be preached to all the world, he says. That's the first reason. The second reason is that God is going to give a special help through his Holy Spirit to people who are persecuted so they can bear witness. Can you imagine how hard it would be to stand up and defend your faith knowing you're about to die? That'd be a hard thing. And yet you read, you read about the people in Fox's Book of Martyrs that they were burned at the stake singing psalms. And you're like, how in the world did they do that? Well, the Holy Spirit helped them. And he'll help you. That's a promise from Jesus, straight from the lips of Christ. And the third thing that is a reason to take heart is that, look at the last verse here. You will be hated for all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now look, this is not talking about work salvation. This is saying if, if the faith of Jesus Christ is real and genuine and authentic in you, you know one of the fruits and the signs of that? You will persevere. Not perfectly. You'll be clumsy. You'll stumble. You'll sin. But you will persevere until the end because Christ in you, the hope of glory, the Holy Spirit is bearing fruit out in your life. That's the most encouraging promise in here to take heart at. And here's just a bonus point. We're closing out. Bonus point is don't be unprepared. Isn't that really the crux of all the teaching that Jesus gives and any of the apostles give on the second coming? You don't have to figure out when it is. Just know this. You need to be ready. Be ready. Be watchful, be vigilant, be ready. Don't be like the, the person who's robbed like a thief in the night. You know, we talk about, you know, the second coming is like a thief in the night. No, the second coming of Christ is like a thief in the night to the person who's not prepared. 
To the Christian, we got like ring application on our front door. We're like, uh-uh, you're coming in here. I'm ready. Not going to deceive me. <laughs> be prepared. Be ready. Be found in Christ on that day. Set your hope on the finished life of Jesus Christ, not your own. We don't have a perfect record to offer God. Anybody in here want to brag about the amazing week you've had obeying God? Anybody? Don't raise your hand if you do. Just come talk to me afterwards, all right? <laughs> the best 10 minutes of my life, I would not put on the overhead for you to see. It's nothing to boast of. The Bible says, boast only in the cross. That's the only thing you can boast in. We don't have any perfect record to offer God. We take Jesus' perfect record, and he says, how about this? This is, this is Christianity. You give me your sinful, cursed, stained record, and I'll give you my perfect, righteous, obedient record, and we'll, we'll trade off. How about that? That sounds like a good deal to me. And then to boot, Jesus says, and I'll take the punishment you deserve, and you can get the reward that I deserve. <laughs> That's the great exchange. No other religion in the world offers it. Every other religion says, do, obey, be perfect, and then God will accept you. Christianity says, it's done. It's paid in full. You just believe. Believe the good news. Believe the gospel. Are you believing the gospel today? Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone? Because, man, this is, if you're not, this is scary. This could come at any moment and sweep you off into a Christless eternity. And I say that as your pastor in love and compassion. It doesn't have to be that way. You can be ready. These promises are for you to believe. Christ is for you. If he predicted this to the exact minute detail and it came true, you know what else we can believe about Jesus? Everything he said. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You can believe that. Jesus has proven himself trustworthy and reliable. You can believe that. Come to Jesus if you're tired and weary. And if you're laden with guilt and emptiness and sensing meaninglessness in your life and futility, come to Jesus. He also says, I will in no wise cast anybody out. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter if you're a rapist, a molester. It doesn't matter. You come to Christ, turn from your sin, and he will receive you and forgive you. And you can belong to him. And you don't have to worry. You don't have to be alarmed. You don't have to be troubled or fearful or misled. Well, listen, I've got a lot more to say, but we're going to save it for next week, okay? So come back. Let's, let's, let's take a moment and pray and pause. And I want you to reflect on what you've heard. And we're going to have a prayer team in the back that if you want to pray, if you need counseling, if you want to confess a sin, if you have sickness and you want somebody to pray over you for healing, this is going to be a time for you to go. But I want to pray as John makes his way to the front. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the truth and the clarity and the power of this passage of Scripture. And Lord, I'm a, I'm a man. I'm a human. I'm fallible. I don't want to be one of the prophets that or preachers that misleads people, Lord, so protect these sheep today. If I've said anything, if I've embellished the truth, if I have gotten a point wrong, Lord, I, I ask for your forgiveness and for your correction, Lord. I want to be true to what you've written and what you've said, so protect your sheep. But the things that have been true, Lord, and, and plant them even deeper into the minds and hearts of these people, may they be filled with hope and with expectation and with joy, and may they take these truths and, and walk out into the sweltering Florida heat and live their life based on these promises, God. May none of these things take us by surprise. May we be found ready. And in the meantime, may we continue to live on mission for you and not be distracted by any of these things, Lord. And I pray, God, if anybody is here and they have not given their life to Christ, this would be the morning. Nobody would leave this building without the hope of Jesus coming alive in their heart. So Holy Spirit, move 
bring about conviction, bring about correction to any Christian living in habitual sin, but bring about conviction to anybody who's unconverted and has not experienced the hope and the beauty and the power of God's forgiving love in Jesus. May this be the morning that they do that. May they call out to you even where they're sitting in their seat and say, Jesus, please cleanse me, forgive me, come into my life, save me, redeem me. May they repent of their sin and turn to Jesus. And I ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.